You are now listening to the Unshakable Health Podcast with Dr. Thomas Hemingway. All right. Uh, so pumped to be back. Uh, well, yes and no. I just got back from sunny and warm Tampa, Florida. Flow. Ride, right? For all you fans out there from that classic, uh, I don't know if that was 80s, 90s. I don't know, probably 90s, but I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, just got back from Tampa, Florida. It was kind of a whirlwind for me. I was only there a couple of days and had to jump right back because, you know, uh, we got six kids and uh, <laughs> hard to find peeps to stay home and watch them. But we had grandma here for a couple of days and then she had to had to go, and so I got right back with them, and it's amazing to be back. It's, I, dang, that was so brief I was there that I hardly got to appreciate the warmth. It is sub-zero here in the mountains of Utah today. <laughs> it's been like minus four, minus five, minus six in the mornings, and a high of like eight degrees. So yeah, <laughs> it's been a quick, harsh awakening. I got to do a little grounding while I was there, but here I just, there's no way I can slip my shoes off, except I do in the house, of course, because, you know, being from Hawaii, we always do that. We have that uh, culture and tradition to take our shoes off. But, uh, yeah, I'm missing, <laughs> I'm missing the warmth. Can't wait to get back out to a warm place. I'm actually taking my folks to Hawaii next week. So back home I'll be in Hawaii, Nay, and I'm going to be there taking, taking my parents because, um, yeah, they're not doing great health-wise. And I don't know, this could be the last trip they get out there. And I just really felt the need to bring them out and have some enjoyable time with them, family, nice weather, and just enjoy some of Hawaii Ne. So I'm back out to Hawaii next week. I'm so excited about that. And for now, I just wanted to take a moment and thank you all for listening. What an amazing gift you give me each and every week listening to these shows where I just strive to provide helpful information that will move the needle in your life so you can accomplish the health of your dreams naturally live with that vitality and zest so thank you for doing this with me for letting me come into your day a little bit spend a little time with you and i just have an amazing episode this week with one of the all-time greats one of the original the literal ogs in the whole paleo movement i can't wait to get into this episode with rob wolf and before i do i just want to thank you for being here and if you haven't already please 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 drop a review especially over there on apple where it really helps move the needle get this podcast visible so we can help more people remember i have a personal goal to help 100 million people in my life to accomplish better health, live longer, live better, and avoid these plagues of our day, the things that are killing us, the heart disease, the cancer, the stroke, the neurodegenerative disease, all of the which are almost entirely preventable, which is why I've written the book, Preventable, Five Powerful practice, Practices to Avoid Disease and Build Unshakable Health, which actually comes out in just about two weeks' time. Preventable, the book, is here, coming out in about two weeks. Uh, hop on over there to my website, thomashemingway.com, or follow me on Instagram, drthomashemingway. Um, and check out all the info coming out with this because I hope you'll grab a copy. You can even pre-order it today at thomashemingway.com. The book is going to just blow minds, and yet it is powerful, simple, but full of all kinds of good, tasty information. You're going to love it. It's amazing. So anyway, share, 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 and share like if there's anyone that you think could get, get um, some help from these shows and all the just really killer information that we present here. Don't forget to share and also subscribe so you never miss an episode. So without further ado, I want to get into this show and I'm going to do it with the 
Rob Wolf, and he is just an incredible human. He is best-selling author of one of the OG paleo books. You guys may have heard of it. It's called The Paleo Solution. Um, he's also a martial artist and <laughs> former powerlifting champion. He's got so many talents. He's a multiple best uh, uh, seller of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, and just a cool human. He's got two kids, lives out there at the moment in Montana. <laughs> He's actually probably really used to the cold. He's out there with his wife, Nikki, and two daughters. And uh, yeah, he's probably used to this cold weather. I am not. But we have an amazing, amazing discussion about all things health, about his journey in paleo and a couple of books that he's written. And he's just a cool, cool dude. So I hope that you'll be following him. Um, on Instagram and wherever else. He's uh, just an amazing human. RobWolf.com is his website. And this today, this episode is going to teach you about all things paleo, all things just nutrient. We're going to talk about hydration. We're going to talk about the elements that we need in our daily life, the magnesium, the zinc, uh, sodium, potassium, all of the things, and how we can just optimize our life and live vital until the end, and just enjoy each and every day, not encumbered at all with health. And so here we go. Let's get into this with the Mr. Rob Holt. Here we go, Rob. Disclaimer, nothing in this podcast is medical advice. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. All right. So super pumped to have just a really great guy, super bright, came from biochemistry like I did. Rob Wolf is on the show today. He's a multiple time New York, New York Times bestselling author. Most of us are familiar with the Paleo Solution, Wired to Eat. And then he also co-authored a book with Diana Rogers called The Sacred Cow, which is pretty interesting as well. And so super pumped to have Rob Wolf on the show today. Welcome, Rob. Doc, huge honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh man, the pleasure is mine. And I, I'm just so pumped to have you. And I'd love to just, you know, I always like to start with the backstory. I think you're such an interesting dude. I haven't mentioned your brown belt and jujitsu and your kickboxing and your powerlifting and all that, but I'd love to kind of see how that all coincides with the research biochemistry and kind of how you got started on this amazing health journey that you've, you know, used to just optimize your life and help so many others. Like where did this get started for you? Oh man, I, I really it started very early, just in in kind of an odd way that both of my parents were pretty sick, like as far back as I can remember. Um, both parents smoked. My dad drank quite a bit. Uh, my mom ended up developing what what we realized were some pretty severe autoimmune diseases: uh, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and celiac. I didn't discover that all of the the kind of autoimmune issues that my mom had until I became very very sick. Uh, I had finished my my undergrad, was looking at either uh, uh, I was debating between conventional medical school, naturopathy school, or a PhD program, and uh, I developed ulcerative colitis so bad. So I'm five foot nine, about 165, 170 pounds right now. Um, I, uh, at, at the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis was still five foot nine, but I was about 125, 130 pounds. So I'm not a big guy. And if you imagine wow. like 40, 45 pounds less of me on this frame, like I, I was in, um, terrible, uh, physical condition, emotional, mental condition. And at the time I was eating a, a vegan diet, like a high carb, low fat vegan diet. I'd been to the Georgia Shawa macrobiotic Institute. I had followed, um, uh, John McDougall's work and everything, because I, I I thought that this was, you know, the healthiest way to eat. And for some folks, maybe it worked. 
for me, it was a disaster like that. And, and looking back at the time, um, I was sleeping because I was in these grad programs. I, I was sleeping like three, maybe four hours a night. And I was like, oh, sleeps for the week. You sleep when you're dead. I was living in Seattle and I had a basement apartment that had a window about that big facing north. And so like, there's absolutely no light. I, I got yeah, up before the, the sun facing. came up. Oh my God. Good. Yeah. And even there, it doesn't really matter all that much. You know, it, it just occasionally gives you a glimmer of hope that there is actually this thing called the sun. But, um, I, my diet was not appropriate for my physiology. I was living like an asshole because I didn't sleep. And then to the degree I did sleep, it was, you know, my circadian biology was completely compromised. And, uh, I, I managed to take my celiac gene, my, my genetic per- propensity for celiac disease. And I think get my vitamin D so low and my sleep so disturbed that I, I took as a kid, I wasn't reactive to gluten. You know, I mean, I think I had a little bit of reactivity. I definitely had brain fog from, from like carbohydrate roller coaster and everything, but man, it was nothing like what, what happened. I just had this event with, you know, with the ulcerative colitis. And then after that, I, I, I full-blown celiac and all these other things. So I got very sick and I thought I was going to die. Um, I knew enough about medicine at the time that, you know, a bowel resection seemed on the horizon, immunosuppressant drugs. And, and mind you, I was like 26, 27 years old at this point. So not, not that old and uh, just kind of out of desperation and also discovering that my mom had celiac and lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and her, uh, her rheumatologist ran some pretty comprehensive uh, food reactivity, um, you know, testing with her. And he said, you to, he said to my mom, you are reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy. And my mom told me this and I'm like, grains, legumes, and dairy. And as a vegan at the time, I was like, okay, I get the dairy, but like grains <laughs> and legumes, like what on earth do you eat if you don't eat grains, legumes, and dairy, you know? And I was sitting there thinking about it. I was like grains, legumes, and dairy. Um, what is that? Like, that's, that's like agriculture. And what did we eat before agriculture? And it was just this like kind of free association. And this is 1997, 1998, just for, for, you know, kind of temporal reference. And I was kind of like, oh, I've heard of this thing called a paleo diet. I don't know where I, you know, it's just this notion about eating the way our hunter gatherer ancestors had eaten. So I did some poking around on that and, uh, it, it had to have been one of the first Google searches for paleolithic diet. And there wasn't much there. There was a couple of hundred returns, mainly some, some, uh, like forums and blogs, but there were two main people, uh, Art Devaney and Lauren Cordain, who went on to be mentors of mine. And uh, a lot of what they talked about was this kind of genetic mismatch between, you know, these hunter-gatherer genes and a, a modern, you know, diet and lifestyle and whatnot. And it made a lot of sense. Like I, I having that biochemistry background and uh, always being kind of curious and geeked out about evolutionary biology, I was like, oh, this makes a ton of sense that maybe you know, an organism might not be unwell if you feed it and water it and exercise it in a way that it is consistent with the evolutionary history that it's had. So there wasn't really any type of book. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, Lauren's book at this point was 
maybe about five years in the future, the paleo diet that was, that was published in 2001. And so the closest thing that I could find at that time was an Atkins book, interestingly. And it was like an Atkins, <laughs> you know, new, new revolution. But what was interesting, it talked a ton about like gut issues, autoimmune issues, celiac, like, um, Atkins really doesn't get quite the credit the the guy deserves for for being much more than just like a, a low carb diet advocate and everything and and uh, he was also very reasonable about it. It was adequate protein in the beginning. Uh, it wasn't just so so fat centric. And then once you leaned out and and got to a spot where you were more metabolically healthy, then he encouraged you to mainly stick with fruits and vegetables, but to find where your carb tolerance was and to eat as broad a diet as you could protein centric, lots of nutrient dense, you know, uh, vegetable matter, and then figure out where your carb tolerance was. And that that's largely what I did. And I'm not particularly carb tolerant. So I've eaten more or less a, a ketogenic diet for the last 23, tw going on 24 years. Um, I went, it, it was right on the heels of, of all this stuff going down that I decided there was no way I could do regular medical school. And even the naturopathy school seemed like kind of a weird angle because um you would spend so much time learning about pathophysiology and i i may be uh cocksurely or erroneously but I, I i still i i think i ended up being correct in this assumption which was that um diet and lifestyle was really where 99% of the the medicine that i wanted to deal with existed you know like i by the I wasn't interested in emergency medicine. It's awesome stuff, but not really where my my interest w was at, at that point, and it still uh, really is not. And I just couldn't imagine doing another like six, eight years of of school just to finally get to a spot where I would be allocated maybe fifteen minutes a person to to try to deal with these really complex health issues and everything. So <laughs> I, I was worth seven minutes. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I mean, again, this is twenty years ago, you know. So it's you know it's whittled whittled down from that. And yeah, yeah. I, I was still working at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center doing benchtop uh, uh, research, basically looking at the lipid profiles of folks, like in the the nurses' health study, and and basically. Taking taking red blood cells, esterifying the the fatty acids in the red blood cells, so that I could run run it through a GCE mass spectrometer and pump that data somewhere else. It's very you know basic basic science research type stuff, but I, it afforded me the opportunity to still spend an inordinate amount of time online poking around. And I found this weird workout online around two thousand two thousand one called CrossFit, and yeah. um, they had some weird links to or cool links to to paleo diet type stuff and atkins and everything the workouts to me looked ridiculous because i had i came from a powerlifting background and everything so like running 400 meters and doing you know uh, uh 25 barbell snatches with 70 pounds just seemed ridiculous i i had not <laughs> tried it yet but um i told my my friends about it uh dave warner and this guy nick nibbler and dave is a retired navy seal Nick was a, a retired Marine Corps officer and I didn't see those guys for like a month. And then when I saw them again, both of them, like their necks were bigger and they looked just thicker. And I'm like, what have you guys been doing? I'm like, oh, we're doing that CrossFit stuff. <laughs> so we, uh, we converted Dave's garage into a gym 
and we started meeting there to work out. And then we started telling some coworkers about it. And within like six months, we had 15 or 20 people that we were training in this, this space. And I reached out to Greg and Lauren Glassman, the founders of CrossFit and said, Hey, uh, uh, Nick and Dave and I would like to open a gym. We'd like to call it CrossFit. Can we do that? And they were like, yes, go be achieve. <laughs> and so that ended up being the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world, CrossFit North. And then I had an opportunity to move back down to Chico, California, where I did my undergrad. And they have things like the sun and heat and warmth there. And so I, I left Seattle to uh, to open up a gym down there. And that was the fourth CrossFit affiliate, uh, CrossFit NorCal, NorCal Strength and Conditioning. And that's where I kind of plugged into this whole scene. You know, I, I worked in and out of CrossFit for, for a long time. We had our own brick and mortar gym. I ended up traveling all around the world doing these nutrition seminars, which is where I really put together all the material for my, my first book, uh, The Paleo Solution. It started as a pre-seminar um, guide for people to read so that we could kind of hit the ground running and really really cover a lot of material, but it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then a friend of mine who was in the publishing industry, he attended the seminar that I was providing at that time. He's like, dude, you, you have almost a whole book here. You know, if we just spit polish this thing up, you, you would be good to go. And I, I had a pretty, pretty big following, you know, relative for the internet at that time. So I managed to get a New York times bestseller out of it. And I, I guess kind of the, the rest is history, but you know, that, that's a, yeah. uh, uh 23 years of of tinkering uh, you know with this stuff is is uh the broad overview of what I what I just described there. Yeah, now the tinkering is cool because um, as as you know in the biochemistry world you do lots of tinkering. A lot of it is pretty rote and pretty repetitive, but you got to ask the questions and that's the thing I like about you is you're always curious. And I think for me, that's been the thing that's helped me so much in my life is just to maintain that curiosity. Because if you're not asking the questions, you're you're definitely not going to find the answers. You you gotta, you know, a lot of people they just take what's out there and they you know either take it as gospel or they take it as uh, obvious falsehood and they just go with it and they never question anything. And right. so having that inquisitive mind and just going out and looking and searching, and you were back in the day where we didn't have the robust, you know, PubMeds of the world and, and the data that was so easy to access. You were, you were kind of in the beginning of all that. And, you know, your initial book was what, what did it about come out almost 20 years ago, the paleo it's 2010, like that? so 12. But oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So 12 years yeah. ago, but still that's, that's quite a while ago. Yep. And, um, so yeah, you were kind of on the forefront of all this. And so where did the bodybuilding, you know, um, kind of, uh, the strength, you know, part, was that before you got really sick that you were into the powerlifting that, or when was, that was all that before that? Yeah. And that was kind of an interesting, um, it was an interesting thing to watch. So I had a youth sports injury playing football. I had a bruised spine and a whiplash, pretty, pretty severe. Like I, I ended up with full body paralysis for like two days Whoa. after that and then started recovering. And I still have a little bit of nerve stuff on my left side because it was like a front impact here and crunch there. Um, and to rehab from that, uh, uh, I got plugged into a little bit of physical therapy, but the physical therapist was like, it, it told my parents, um, your son's you know, active and athletic, he should start lifting weights and and they should do some real emphasis on like his neck conditioning and whatnot. So, um, interestingly, I got plugged into a couple of world champion power lifters, uh, this guy, Danny Thurman and another guy, Rich Wood, uh, Danny is still active in, in power lifting. He 
at 165 pounds, has had nearly a 500 pound bench press and stuff like that. Like just phenomenal numbers, really, really elite (laughs) stuff. And, uh, I was just this Bambi legged kid at at like 14 years old. I I think the first time I tried squatting with a bar, like the guy had to pick the bar (laughs) up off me because I just like fell on my back, you know, just so it it was such an odd movement compared to what I had, uh, I had ever done prior to that. But um, these guys kind of took me under their wing and it was maybe three years of training. And my first, my first powerlifting uh, competition, I had a 500 pound squat, 500 pound deadlift and a 300 pound bench. And then my last competition, while I was still a teenager, I was 19 and just on the, the, the cusp of turning 20, I was 181 pounds and 565 squat and deadlift and a 345 bench. And this was at a time I had an Inzer lever belt for a, for a weightlifting belt, but no squat suit, no deadlifting briefs, no, no knee, knee wraps or anything. And I, I was, um, only about 4%, 3%, 4% of the total off of uh, totaling elite. And, and wow. that was as uh, effectively a raw power lifter. Um, whereas today people wear the, the suits, which, um, mm-hmm. folks will acknowledge that like uh, on the squat, when you get used to it, the squat suit and knee wraps can add about 10 to 12 percent to your total. So like, had I been in that, that more gear, uh, the bench shirt can add about six to 8% <laughs> and stuff like that. So I, I pretty easily could have probably, uh, totaled elite as, as a teenager, even in that. So I, I was okay at it at, at five foot nine, I could stand flat footed under a basketball hoop and jump up and, and dunk a, a tennis ball. Um, if you asked me to dribble towards the thing <laughs> and do anything there, there was no hope of that happening, but yeah, I, I, I had, uh, even on my genetic screening, I'm not like, I'm a little bit fast twitch dominant. So like I, I had a little predilection with that. And then I, because of the, the geared nature of, um, powerlifting, like the bench shirts, the squat suits and everything, it just seemed kind of weird to me. I'm like, so I'm going to wear like a triple ply canvas shirt that makes my arms cross like this so that I've got like this spring back thing. And it, 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 and people will argue on and on and on about whether this is legit or not legit. But for me, I just completely lost interest in it. And it was when I moved down to Southern California, I got into uh, Thai boxing and I actually had my first exposure to Brazilian jiu-jitsu around 1993, but it, it was, um, I was close to getting my Thai boxing instructor certification and it, the Thai boxing was literally out my back door in, in Long Beach, California, whereas to do the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I had to drive across LA to do that. So I didn't really get to do jiu-jitsu again until like 2004 and that was just for a brief time. So I've been consistent with jujitsu since 2012 and uh, kind of knocking on the door to my my black belt on that stuff. But that's been kind of my my athletic process. I got wow. into uh, capoeira, the Brazilian kind of dance martial art, around 26, I guess. And um, that's how I met my wife, actually, was, was doing capoeira. So oh, if cool. you are... If you are interested in movement, dance, and dating, Capoeira is not a bad, <laughs> bad scene not to bad, be in. There's some good good place. folks in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, but you, you, you know, um, on on that that powerlifting front. So I had 
traditionally eaten kind of a high protein, high carb bodybuilder type diet while I was powerlifting. And my body composition was okay. It wasn't, wasn't great. I was definitely kind of doughy, like even as a kid and looking at my family history, um, I wasn't super insulin sensitive. Like I had a lot of blood sugar highs and lows, particularly those lows where I would get hypoglycemic and really shaky and everything. But I was eating about 41, 4,200 calories a day in this kind of mixed diet and pretty strong, pretty explosive. Then I shifted to a vegetarian and then a vegan diet, still eating the same number of calories, but my body weight wow. just plummeted. And, and so the food would just go out the same way it went in. Like it was just completely mm -hmm. undigested because of the, the development of the ulcerative colitis and all that stuff. Yeah. What, what prompted your shift to try the vegan vegetarian route when you were, you know, going from being the power lifting, you know, tons of calories, tons of protein, all that to, to just what made you shift that? What just curiosity or were other definitely folks curiosity? Um, I assumed that, you know, what it was, I was pretty anti-establishment and anti-tradition as most young men are. That's <laughs> why biology makes a few more men than women, because not all of us make it through <laughs> to reproductive age, uh, because of doing dumb stuff. And I, I was just curious and, you know, I would it, at college, um, it was kind of the bourgeoisie thing to get in and, and be vegan and, and, uh, concerned about the animals, which I, I am very concerned about, uh, our food quality and animal husbandry, but there, there was kind of a, uh, a rebellious part to it, an assumption that like, well, of course, eating differently than the way that all these, you know, fat Americans eat it has got to be, <laughs> you know, better uh, for me, better for the earth and all that type of stuff. The, the, the thing that was really a bugger about that is I started getting sicker immediately. And I asked wow. folks in, in the scene, you know, like all kinds of digestive issues and just like strength and body weight plummeting. And I was eating tons of food, absolutely tons yeah. of food, but it ju just wasn't digesting it. And what I kept hearing was this really dubious stuff. Like, well, you're going, you're detoxing, you're going through a healing <laughs> crisis and all this stuff. And, um, I just uh, about healing crisis to myself into oblivion. Like I nearly died from this stuff. And, yeah. and even now, you know, if folks are tinkering with a low carb diet or carnivore or whatever, I'll sign off on a couple of weeks of like shaky ground that, that maybe things aren't, aren't great. You're not feeling your best, but my God, like because of the internet and because of this ability to, to, um, compare notes and the opportunity to just research anything under the sun, you shouldn't struggle for weeks or months with dietary change and have stuff continue to get really bad. And, and the, the one caveat I'll throw out there is there are folks with really complex disease states or conditions like Lyme disease and stuff like that. It's really hard to unpack all that stuff, but it's also mm -hmm. worth noting that uh, folks with Lyme disease or some of these complex metabolic issues, when they go lower carb, they tend to feel better, at least marginally better immediately. And then it's just kind of an iterative process to, to get them further down the road. So one of the things, and I talked to doctors, I talked to people like John McDougal and stuff like that. I'm like, doc, I just don't think this is working for me. No, no, no. You just need to stick to it. You just need to... <laughs> believe. And, uh -huh. and when you start turning um, healthcare and diet into religious dogma that you have to live yeah. by or, or get outed by your, your group, then there's maybe a problem with that, you know, but, the, but that's kind of the, yeah. again, the long arc of like my athletic background and where the diet and lifestyle stuff kind of interfaced with all that. 
I mean, you were frankly in, in sort of medical terminology, you were frankly, you know, cachectic, you were literally withering away. I mean, losing a third of your body weight and just, I I can't believe you were that patient. Like I, I kind of feel bad for you, but I I think it really worked. Yeah. 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 Dumb patient. (laughs) But, uh, I think that part of that, you know, having your continuous inquisitive nature and being able to, you know, look for data and look for other rationale and then, and then just to be willing to try new things. I'm glad that you, you turned the corner and found the paleo solution, if you will. And I'm curious, you know, you, I'd, I'd love to give you just a moment and, and you alluded to this already with uh, animal husbandry and in the whole process with, you know, regenerative agriculture, there's just so much dogma out there, just like you said. And when people turn sort of what, maybe science, pseudoscience, whatever, into just like a, almost like a religion and super dogmatic about whatever it is. It doesn't even matter. It just gets pretty chaotic and, and, and dangerous. I think, frankly, dangerous to, <laughs> to be a little bit blunt, but uh, tell us, you know, how you've, you know, been able to, I know you put together the book Sacred Cow and we won't get into all of those details, but just tell us briefly how you can be, you know, humane to animals, still use them in your diet and agriculture and how it benefits us and them and the world. Like just give us a brief, you know, rundown of how that actually works. Cause there's just so much misinformation, misunderstanding, I mean, and way too much dogma. Just maybe speak to that topic for a moment. Do you like hackers? I certainly don't. I hate them. I just can't stand even the thought of being hacked at the airport or any other place where you use public Wi-Fi. And so I have joined ExpressVPN and you should too. And if you use my code at expressvpn.com forward slash Dr. Thomas, that's D-R-T-H-O-M-A-S, you will get three months for free. So why stress about the hackers? Why stress about using airport Wi-Fi? I don't. I don't any longer. In fact, I use airport Wi-Fi all the time because I'm protected at ExpressVPN. So check it out. ExpressVPN.com forward slash Dr. Thomas for three months free. Yeah, I mean, one of the the difficult things to unpack in this story is that there is no bloodless diet, and like the the That's vegan agenda, you know, the the folks, and I think they're very well meaning, oftentimes, but oftentimes super myopic or or tunnel visioned about the way that yeah. they look at things. You know, if you you look at a a big field of soybeans, that that field of soybeans was not there a hundred years ago. There was maybe it was other types of crops, maybe it was wild, wild parkland or, you know, whatever, but whatever the ecosystem that was there had to be removed for the soy crop or the corn crop or the wheat crop or whatever to, to go in and replace it. And then each year when you plant, you plow the field, you, um, try to eradicate different types of pests. And this ranges from, microbes like like uh bacteria and fungus all the way up to you know s- small medium large 
mammals, um, you know, on and on and on. Uh, when the plants are growing, you have to apply pesticides and herbicides that that also kill kill lots and lots of critters. Then when you harvest them, this is when the real you know massacre happens. There, there even despite all the pesticides and herbicides and everything, there's still lots of critters living in these you know monocropped areas. And they get at least displaced and and more likely killed in the process of harvesting all this stuff. Then we have to take these, you know, soybeans, corn kernels, rice kernels, and store them somewhere. And where you store them, you have to have ubiquitous uh, poison sources and traps available to kill things like mice and voles and birds because they will get into these these grain and and legume stores and eat them. So when you eat your tofu thing or your, your chickpeas or whatever, um, there may not be a hunk of meat on your plate, but when people say that they, you know, I'm, I'm doing this for humane reasons, it, it is not a bloodless process. And there's actually been some great analysis applied to how many animals are killed if we eat a cow for for food, you know, what's, what, what are the ecosystem, you know, implications there versus like a, a mouse and a cow are different in size, but in complexity and neurological functioning and whatnot, they're very similar. They're both mammals, you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're actually quite similar. And so when you look at a life by life basis, the vegan centric row crop model kills arguably more animals than if we were to shift to mainly pasture-based production of meat. Um, chicken and pork is kind of a different topic and we could talk about it today or we could talk about it some, some other time, but it, it really is kind of a different topic. Uh, and that we would arguably kill fewer animals in a process like that. And there's a lot of numbers that's involved in unpacking that. And you have to be able to sit down and, uh, I have two kids that are, uh, two daughters, eight and 10 and, they're great kids, but you, like as a parent, you're always trying to impart these these nuggets of wisdom to to kids, and sometimes they're just they're not emotionally, mentally developed enough to get it. Sometimes it's just not the right time to get that lesson, and all, all this type of stuff. And I feel like this is a little bit the same with like the the population at large. A lot of people tend to make decisions off of uh, pure emotion. Like they just, they yeah. feel this emotion and, and, and I, I acknowledge that, but the, the thing is, is that the world is oftentimes way more complex than what we give it credit for. And a lot of our initial knee-jerk emotional response is this first order thinking. It's very similar to just kind of allopathic medicine. You know, it's like, doc, okay. my head hurts. Okay. Here's, here's an NSAID to deal with that. And it's like, well, did we really deal with what <laughs> was it hypoglycemia yeah. was it electrolyte imbalance? You know, it, we're, we're not really addressing the root cause there. And mm -hmm. a lot of the root cause around animal husbandry and like stable food systems and doing good by the environment. It's a complex story to unpack. It isn't, um, it isn't this wonderful elevator pitch thing that kind of the plant-based vegan folks have. They'll tell you, if you go vegan, you'll be skinny and live forever. You'll save the planet. You'll be morally superior, you know, on and on and on. Whereas um, I've been floundering around for the better part of 10 minutes to try to just do a superficial treatment of this regenerative ag yeah. topic. Like each one of these things, it's kind of an asymmetric warfare. Um, the, the vegan folks will say, 
meat causes cancer. And it's like they throw a hand grenade over the fence. <laughs> and what you have to do to respond to that is a mini PhD thesis in, well, does meat really cause cancer? You know, and you have to unpack all this literature and what's the quality of the, 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 um, you know, the, the data that they're trying to put forward, like food frequency questionnaires and stuff like that. Yeah. We'll throw another one over the thing, you know, um, cows produce more methane than any other source and they throw it over the fence. And, um, and once those memes are out in the world, people just believe them. Like this stuff still yeah. gets gets picked up by like mainstream media and whatnot. So Diana Rogers and I, over 10 years ago, we knew we had to do this book and film, Sacred Cow, but we didn't start working on it really until about 2016, 2017, um, because it was just too early. There weren't enough people aware of what was going on to really make this uh, a viable go. But really what we do is we, we ask the question... Um, what is the implications for health, the environment, and and ethical considerations of an animal inclusive food system? And and we try to get in and look at every every take on this. You know, whether people will say cows take up too much land. Boom, we'll <laughs> throw that thing out there. I'm like, okay, let's talk about this. What does that really mean? Like, what is the land that they are taking up? Well, it's grasslands. What are gra grasslands good for? Growing grass. Neither grow grass on them, or they be. And if you they do grow grass, grass co-evolved with the animals that eat them, yeah. and they also co-evolved with fire, also, which is a whole other thing. You know, with like proper uh, fire, <laughs> you, you know, management, and you know, some things should sure. probably be burned, and other things should be you know intervened on. But um, if you don't allow ruminants to eat grasses then you end up with a desertified area areas uh, like uh, there's a really amazing movie. It's from the 1940s called the ocean of grass. And it talks about the mid 1800s and this giant ocean of grass that went all the way from Las Vegas out to salt Lake city. And that used to be grassland and it's now desert wow. because it was <laughs> yeah. overgrazed. And we put up fencing everywhere that disrupted the the, the normal uh, migratory patterns of like bison and elk and, and different animals. And so you can overgraze an area, you can undergraze an area. Um, and again, this I'm probably talking more about this than what, yeah. what we should. But uh, um, all I would throw out there is that I didn't want to commit career suicide by doing this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get paid by the meat industry. I will share my... <laughs> tax returns with anybody and you will not find any meat industry uh, uh, funds no dumping into the thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, at the end of the day, the amount of work that Diane and I put into that book and film probably making about no joke, about $2 an hour off of it. So it, it, yeah. it, uh, it was a labor of love, but there was not a solid one-stop shop source uh, tackling the environmental, ethical, and health considerations of all of this. And you really do have to look at all of those at the same time, uh, because a part of what we dig into the book is that it may be hard bordering on impossible to grow healthy humans without animal products. Now, people will push back on that. That's fine. But we lay out a, a pretty strong case for that. And if you if it's difficult or impossible to have a healthy baby develop and wean that baby with a mom that doesn't consume animal products. If that hypothesis is true, then it changes the ethical dynamics a lot 
because then it kind of makes the question of how can you ethically suggest that we don't provide the opportunity for moms and kids to have animal products. Once you become a teenager and you want to make bad decisions, fine, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, moms and babies should be afforded the best care that we absolutely can. And it is crystal clear in the literature that uh, what's fascinating is that the characteristics of vegan and vegetarian moms and babies look indistinguishable from people battling to survive in developing countries because the commonality there is limited access to nutrient-dense foods, specifically animal products. The, the, the deficiency syndromes are identical. It's B vitamins, it's iron, it's yeah. magnesium, uh, elongated omega-3 fatty acids. Omega the, um, the stunting and growth is con completely consistent, a loss of height, a loss of IQ, a loss of mental acuity, increased uh, susceptibility to respiratory viruses and infectious disease. So yeah, it's a lot. Sorry. Well, I, I know I'm just yeah, like going yeah, all no, over the place, it's, but it, it, it's, it's a lot to unpack, <laughs> but, but this is, yeah. this is why we covered the health environmental and ethical considerations of a meat inclusive food system. Because when you really get in and unpack the health topic. And then there's the possibility we throw out there. I'm, I'm suggesting that it may be impossible to have a globally networked food system that doesn't have animal products because there's no way to regenerate the soil. It's well understood that our modern row crop food system is destroying and degrading our topsoil. And there is no goddamn way you're going to feed the planet with um, lab-grown foods, which we get in and break down the numbers on, on that stuff too. And I hate just throwing something out there like that, absent all the context, but that's what the book and film are for. So we can walk people yeah. through these things. So I would desperately encourage people to not believe a word that I said, but to get in and read the book, watch the film, and then literally go every citation that we have in the book and in the film. Look at what those citations say. Look at what our claims are relative to what those citations are. And if you do a little poking around the interwebs, you don't see any vegan takedown pieces about our book and film. There's none. And I think it's because we did such a good job that these folks looked at it and they're like, shit, there's not actually a hole here. Like we didn't lie. There, we have some really <laughs> inconvenient stuff in there. Like, um, and we get people in the regenerative ag space really mad at us. But there isn't a huge difference nutritionally between grass-fed meat and conventional meat. There's a little bit of difference in omega-3 content. The, the pastured meat has a little bit more omega-3. The reality is that red meat is just super healthy and super nutrient-dense, whether it's conventional or grass-fed. And that's one of these things that uh, uh, we almost wanted to lie about because we knew that folks in the regenerative yeah. space were going to want our heads on a pike. But we actually mm -hmm. hired a, an independent uh, PhD in biochemistry to research this topic. We're like, give us a compare and contrast of <laughs> of the you know uh, pastured based meat versus conventional meat. And we didn't provide yeah. any of the material that we had. And this guy arrived at exactly the same conclusion that that we did. So we even have some like really inconvenient stuff there. It would have been great in kind of a, a greenwash scenario. It's like, oh yeah, man, pastured meat is way more nutritious and it's way better for more. the environment and it's better for the, it, you know, the animals, but nutritionally, it's not that different. And there's also yeah. kind of a reality that within 
your CAFO, the, the confined area feedlot mm-hmm. uh, operation, the meat that you get from Costco or Walmart that's just on, on general availability, maybe about 40% of that meat is actually raised in regenerative practices. And then instead of being finished in a, a pasture-based system, is just flipped over into the CAFO system to be finished. So even there, it's kind of like, was that regenerative or not? Well, the people raising the animals on that land are actually doing regenerative practices. Then it ends up in the the more commoditized meat system. So it's not this um, Walt Disney, like super simplified thing. Like it's actually really, again, I, I've been jabbering about this a lot yeah. and I don't know if I've, I've made a cogent thought with <laughs> any of it, but it's really complex. And yeah. if people care about this, you have to take a little bit of time to step back and look at this stuff. And maybe Diana and I are totally full of shit. Maybe it's all <laughs> wrong or maybe not. Maybe this there is something deeper and more uh, uh, complex to this story. And if we really care about this topic of like climate change and feeding a global population and feeding the people in our, our current population that are at the margin, like the biggest difference between a middle-income family and a low-income family is that the low-income family has access to poorer foods. And the poorer quality food relates directly to like academic performance, a a host of different things. So within our our current population, we have people that are living at the margins that are arguably not as as well-fed as they could be. And we're being told that um, meat products are the doom of us all. <laughs> and and uh, like in the New York uh, City school system, 10% of kids are considered homeless. Something like 80% of the kids in the system, no, uh, 35% of the kids, the only meals that they get are at school. That's it. Oh. That's like the only oh. meals that they get. And they've been doing like meatless Mondays and and vegan Fridays and stuff like that. And so the already paltry amount of meat and animal products that these kids get are being replaced with even lower nutrient density options. And, and I think that that's a crime. It's criminal. We should be going the exact opposite for these, for these marginalized, you know, low, low income um, minorities, you know, on and on and on, at least given the option to do that. If they yeah. want to choose one way or the other, that that's fine. But what's yeah. being foist upon them all is that this is the best way that you and your kids should live. And they're not being given an option anymore. And I think that that's appalling. Yeah. Yeah. No, you speak to this uh, wonderfully well. It, 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 I know it's super complicated. I like to just backpedal way back, way back, like you kind of do with your paleo stuff. It's just, what did we used to do hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago? You know, if we would just kind of mirror that a little bit better, a lot of these problems would go away. And and I love that you address the fact that, uh, and, and it's inconvenient maybe to the regenerative folks that uh, the quality of, let's say the animal meats, like you were mentioning, the Those that we can either get at Costco or those that have a stamp that says grass fed and finish, there's not a huge difference in the quality. So I always tell folks, especially, you know, people like me, I got six kids and I got four boys and, you know, two college students, teenagers, and then two little girls. And then these guys eat a ton of food. So it does make a difference at the end of the day. Like, how do you eat healthy on a budget? People ask me that all the time. And it's like, I got six kids. I can tell you some things you can cut corners on some things I wouldn't recommend you cut corners on, but this kind of thing, like, you know what, if you just buy the whole food stuff, like real meat, not, not fabricated impossible meat, that's got a hundred ingredients. Most of the, which are questionable, like just buy real food. And if you can't afford the grass fed and finish fine, it's totally fine. Just eat real food to start with. 
you're always going to be better off. And the whole business too, with the, those folks that do want to eat a lot of vegetables and things like if you can do the organic, fantastic. I commend you. You know, there's certain areas that you don't want to cut corners, like the berries and such that are right. so laden with pesticides. You definitely want to shoot for organic there. And, you know, people can go to the ewg.org and get access to the yep. dirty dozen and the clean 15 and stuff like that. And so it's, it can be pretty simple, although there's so much out there. It can be really, really complicated. But I think just for the folks at home, like, don't make it like Rob and I make it here sometimes when, when we try to share all this data and it seems so just complex and challenging and, and there's just so many, you know, nuances to all this. It doesn't have to be, if you just kind of turn the clock back a couple hundred years, think of what your great grandparents ate. I mean, I don't know about you, Rob, but my grandmother, like she was, she was just kind of a real simple minded gal. She grew up on a farm and she told me when I was a young kid, she's like, Hey, couple of things you just got to know. Number one, you are what you eat. And number two, fat doesn't make you fat. Like she had a glass jar mm. at the side of the uh, countertop where she would pour her bacon grease or whatever grease that she had from cooking meat. And we reused that every morning for whatever we were yep. making. Like we never used any kind of vegetable oil ever. Like I didn't even know what that was until later on. I'm like, what is this weird stuff that's so clear? It, it looks pure and it looks awesome, but it's really rancid. Like I didn't know that. Right. But, you know, she made some very simple points from just growing up, you know, a hundred years ago that that if we would just apply those simple things like eating real food, not being afraid of real food and real animal products that came from a place of hopefully they were well-raised, but if not, it's still better than eating industrialized garbage, you know, and just come speak to that. I, I would love you to just take that point and just look at the quality overall for human health of protein and, you know, looking at animal protein versus, you know, plant protein, you know, what, what are the differences, you know, just be as succinct as you want, but kind of lay that out. You kind of already alluded to this with kids that are growing up vegan and, and stuff like that, that they're going to have some serious issues with malnutrition. You know, you spoke to a few of those things, B12 and, and some of the vitamins that are also included in, in really the superfood of meat that aren't included to the greatest degree in plants. And even if they are, they're not well absorbed. You know, the folks that want to say, oh, you just eat a bunch of this algae and you're going to get plenty of B12. That's just not true. It's just not right. true. You know, you're not going to get omegas in the same way out of plants. It's just not true. I mean, speak to just the difference between plant protein, animal protein, and, and why one may be better for the human race than the other. Yeah. You know, just broadly, the protein topic is interesting. There's a hypothesis yeah. out there called the protein leverage hypothesis, which makes this case that organisms generally eat to a protein minimum. And what, what, you know, it's, uh, you see this even with grazing animals like uh, cattle, sheep, horses will really seek out like clover and these these dense uh, nitrogen sources, dense protein sources, um, and they tend to eat less total forage when they they do that because biology has figured out that dense protein sources also tend to be highly nutrient rich, and so you don't need to get as many calories overall. Uh, if you hit adequate protein, it's kind of like you just automatically get all, all the other buckets kind of filled. And the flip side is that if an organism doesn't eat enough protein, it tends to overeat everything else. And this is true. Like we saw this happen, like in keto land, when folks got into this, really, they were like protein phobic for a number of years, like all the mTOR <laughs> stuff yeah. and everything was going on. Yeah. And there were people recommending ketogenic diets with like 40, 30 grams of, of protein a day total. Ooh. And then the rest from fat. And people were like, dude, I'm gaining weight on a ketogenic diet. And then they would start talking about like, well, you know, mayonnaise has like one gram of carbs per 
jar so maybe you know they were just like uh, going crazy it's like no man you're just so under eating protein that you are still yeah. hungry all the time and we see this either at the high carb side or the low carb side of things but what we see consistently is when people eat adequate protein they tend to not overeat at large okay why yeah. is that important around 2007 for the first time in human history more people on the planet began dying from overnutrition, overeating yeah. of calories, than deficiency diseases and, and infectious disease. So we're in this situation now where we are overfed but undernourished. You know, we have all these available calories that don't have the protein, don't have the vitamins, don't have the minerals, and and we end up basically un undernourished. And it's really weird. It's like people are overfed yet starving to death yeah. at at the same time. It's this really weird scenario. And what it induces in the body is this just ravenous hunger to continue eating because we're not meeting our basic nutritional needs. And this is one of the commonalities between like paleo and vegan, high carb and low carb. When you shift to a minimally processed whole food diet, your nutrient density increases, period. Yeah. You know, yeah. but there is some reality that animal products end up carrying disproportionately high amounts of key nutrients like vitamins, minerals, B vitamins, zinc, copper, on and on and on. And it's really hard to get these things from plant-based sources. There's a, a guy, I'm blanking on his name, but he just had a, a rejiggering of the nutrient density guidelines, the way that they are categorized. And somebody finally got in and looked at not just the nutritional value of an item as it sits on a plate, but actually considered what the digestive process looks like. And the yeah. first 12 items are plant or, or animal materials. It's like, you know, uh, organ meats and shellfish and lean meats and eggs and, you know, on and on and on. And you get really quite a ways down the list before you start getting into like spinach and kale and different things like that. <laughs> And the, yeah. th this is a, a, an interesting kind of a side on this where there was a, a study that looked at folks consuming um, traditional corn tortillas with, with meat and they, um, they had folks consume a tortilla that had, had been processed in this unique way to remove the phytic acid, the, the phytates that are, are these metal binding um uh, chemicals and anti-predation uh, chemicals in the corn and in, in grains in general. But what they found was that the folks who consumed meat, seafood, you know, whatever great uh, protein source they had with the, the untreated corn, they absorbed no zinc, no magnesium, no copper. It was as if it didn't even exist wow. in the food. So it's not just this piece that the animal products are uniquely nutritionally dense. The types of plant materials that you eat with them can undo the, 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 the those, those inputs, you know? So this is where it, it again, and God, I, I, you, you made a good point, which is that people just get blown out of the water with the complexity of this stuff. And now people are, some folks are like, so what, I can't eat corn tortillas. And that's not what I'm saying, but, um, <laughs> you maybe don't want to eat them every single meal every day. Yeah. You know, it, there's yeah. a, a viable uh, case to be made for that. Uh, this is, is also where some of the, uh, like the Weston A. Price stuff, like soaking and sprouting mm -hmm. 
grains before milling them into yeah. flour can really mitigate a lot of these problems with anti-nutrients and the mineral loss and, and stuff like that. But it's uh, from just kind of a, a basic metabolic health perspective, we are consistently overeating. There was just this huge uh, uh, meeting of scientists and nobody could agree what, what the primary driver of obesity was, you know, they're trying to focus in on, on one particular area. It, it is quite complex, but I do think that this protein leverage hypothesis has a lot of legs and it makes a lot of sense. It, there are still kind of some, some holes to it in, in some regards, but there is this reality that when folks eat minimally processed, uh, whole foods, when they have dense protein sources, like from animal products, they just tend to not overeat. And when we start yeah removing protein, minimizing protein and mixing foods in these really amazingly complex and tasty ways. It's, it's very, very easy to overeat. The, the palate side is really stimulated. You think like a Lay's potato chip, like what's the Lay's potato <laughs> tagline? Bet, bet you can't eat just one. Yeah. And like they'll, they'll win that one all day long. And then there's also yeah, the reality yeah. that when those foods displace uh, nutrient dense foods, then we're just hungry all the time because our, our body knows that we we have not reached adequate nutrition. So it goads us to eat more and more and more. And before the pandemic, there was a study, uh, it's maybe about six years old now, that suggested that 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. And after the pandemic, that dropped by 50%. It's now um, yeah. 7% of Americans are considered to be metabolically healthy, which was the one modifiable risk factor that was presented within the the whole of COVID. We had age and metabolic health as these two, yeah. you know, primary risk factors and 50, you know, because of the, the demands of the, the pandemic and a host of other issues, um, we only have 7% of people that are, are considered metabolically healthy by modern standards. So yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's a lot to unpack, but I think, I think what you, um, you know, kind of spoke to earlier really goes back to the simplicity that really could be, if you just look to whole and just real food, single ingredient foods, I like to share with people the stuff that you don't need the label because it's just, it is what it is. If it's meat, right. it's meat. If it's, you know, if it's fish, it's fish. If it's, if, if it's some vegetable that you can tolerate, you don't know, you know, you don't have to look at an ingredients label, you know what that is intuitively. But I think the point that you made um, of the anti-nutrients, which a lot of these plant uh, um, food items contain, nobody or not that many people speak to very often, but it's really important. And if you turn back the clock once again and look at our ancestry, they knew this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. They soaked their their beans if they ate them, or they made like our our great Japanese friends, they made them into fermented products because they right. realized that not only does it decrease the anti-nutrient uh, concentration, but it makes what is there more bioavailable. So then you can actually absorb it. Cause I, I guess I, I gave a little bit of a oversimplification. We are not just what we eat, but we are what we can digest and assimilate. Yep. Cause if it's just going straight through us, like when you went on the vegan diet and lost 60 pounds that you didn't need to lose in the first place, you, you know, had that, you know, first order in your own life, you experience that because you have yep. to be able to break it down, digest it, then assimilate it back into the proteins that make us human. And what's cool about that and, and also simplistic is that we recognize other animal proteins better than plant proteins. It's just simple biology. If you go to the molecular level and you look at these things, guess what are more similar? 
is protein from a plant more similar to us than protein from an animal? Heck no. Like just, there's just no way. In fact, if you look, looked at them under a microscope slide, even a kindergartner could tell the difference between animal protein and plant protein. They don't look anything alike, even at this more gross macroscopic level. Think of the micro, you know, the, if you go way down deep, they're way different. So it's, even my kids understand this simple point that what is like attracts like, and, and it just makes more sense at the end of the day. And it can be really simple, but I think when you combine these things in your diet, you have to recognize, like you said, I, something I hadn't really thought of, you know, how a Lay's potato chip or some other processed food item, not only is it not healthy or nutrient dense, but it could actually potentially be blocking absorption of some things that you really do want to absorb. So what an even greater case to eat the real foods. And I, I just appreciate so much that you shared that for the first time in history, we are not, you know, dying of starvation to the same degree as we are dying of obesity. We are literally dying of obesity and its complications. And this is over a decade old and nobody's talking about this. Nobody's talking about all the downstream effects. I mean, every, you know, seven out of 10, I'm, I'm sure you know this, Rob, but seven out of 10 of the most common causes of death worldwide are entirely or nearly entirely 90 plus percent preventable, you know, heart disease, most cancer, diabetes, obesity, lung disease, kidney disease, all the neurodegenerative conditions uh, can largely be prevented. I mean, why do, why do you think we're calling Alzheimer's and other dementias type three diabetes? Like right. there's a link, right? <laughs> and, you know, just backpedaling to the whole foods diet, real food, single ingredients, um, it's, it's so simple yet we do overcomplicate it. And I want to give you one second to chat about one of your favorite topics. Cause I know we're getting close to time, but uh, the whole salt business and is salt good, is salt bad. What's the deal with electrolytes? I think you already spoke a little bit to minerals and these kinds of things with, with the superfood of, of meat and so on. But let's speak just briefly to why it is that salt is important in our diet. And I think in us as humans, it's often been labeled as the redheaded stepchild and it's causing right. all these ailments like hypertension and heart disease and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but you and I know that it's largely related to just the processed food nature of the folks that are eating these highly processed foods, which come with salt, obviously. And then of course, if you oversalt on top of that, maybe they could get, but it, it's actually, a little bit hard to get too much salt um, unless you're eating mostly processed foods. I think you could probably share from your experience because you've lived this as well and seen so many other people. But if you eat a real foods, whole foods, paleo diet, what have you, I mean, it's darn near impossible to get too much salt in your diet. In fact, it's easier to get less salt than you need if you're eating a real foods diet. So maybe just speak to the salt issue real quick. Do you ever get tired of planning, prepping, and cooking your own healthy meals? Well, I know I do. And so you've got to check out Trifecta Nutrition. They ship pre-made high quality with great ingredient meals right to your door. From paleo to keto to vegan and so much more, they have delicious meals for every diet. you got to go over there to trifectanutrition.com and check out the code Dr. Thomas, D-R-T-H-O-M-A-S for 40% off at checkout. So trifectanutrition.com and use the code D-R-T-H-O-M-A-S at checkout and get yourself 40% off. I hope you'll enjoy it as I do. Aloha. Yeah, I mean, you you actually nailed it. I, 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 it'd be hard to improve on that. The um, eight, About 80 to 85% of the sodium that folks consume in westernized countries comes from processed food. Yeah. So, it, and we definitely know that cardiovascular disease is this primary killer of folks in, in developed countries. Yeah. 
hypertension is absolutely a major factor in the atherosclerotic, you know, progression. Sodium is definitely a piece of that story. When the body retains excess sodium, we retain excess water, that excess fluid volume uh, changes the, the, you know, the dynamics of our circulatory system. We get non-laminar flow and we get damage to the vascular endothelium. And that is without a doubt, a major factor in the development of, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, strokes and heart attacks. Yep. The bugger though, is that we focused almost all of our attention on sodium. And although sodium is a factor there, what's crazy is that we've done, we have really nice high quality studies where we put folks in a metabolic ward on low or no sodium diets. We know exactly yeah. how much they're eating. We know what types of foods they're eating. We know their blood pressure before we know their blood pressure afterwards. And the bugger there is that low sodium diets don't really modify blood pressure all that much. It'll bring it down a little bit, but for the vast majority of people, it doesn't decrease blood pressure that much. And that's likely because the primary driver of hypertension is really insulin resistance. And when we become yeah. insulin resistant, chronically elevated insulin levels elevate other hormones like aldosterone and cortisol, which cause us to retain sodium. And even if we're not consuming much sodium out of the diet right now, we have these great sodium reserves in places like our bones and our tissue. So the body will actually mine the sodium out of our bones and tissue and crazy thing. Number, number two or number three at this point is that there's this massive linkage between osteoporosis and low sodium intake, because when we mine sodium out of the bones, we take calcium for a ride too. And then the next crazy thing with that is when we pull calcium out of the bones, like we do in that, that low sodium environment, one of the nasty things that that calcium does is accelerate the placking in our, our arteries and veins or well, our yeah. arteries, it doesn't, doesn't do it in our veins. So, yeah. um, so we have this situation where we've completely demonized sodium. Sodium is definitely a factor in this thing, but it's likely not the causative factor in this story. Yeah. If you are already insulin resistant and hypertensive, a high sodium diet isn't likely doing you favors. But a super low sodium diet isn't necessarily going to fix the problems either. We have to modify your diet, lifestyle, and exercise in a way that you're no longer insulin resistant. And then what we find is that people usually do really well on about five, five to seven grams of sodium per day. And if you're active or live in a hot or humid environment, you may need double that stuff. If you eat a lower carb diet, you may need a, about double that level. But it's uh, it's been one of the fascinating things that you know, having launched element, which is this electrolyte product that I'm, I'm one of the co-founders, there's been this kind of weird force field around it because sodium is one of these non-negotiable nutrients. It, 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 every nerve impulse in our body, every muscle contraction is driven largely by sodium potassium pumps. Like this is the action mm -hmm. potential that occurs and calcium and magnesium are super important in that process too. But sodium potassium are really the primary drivers. And if you look at the most tightly regulated physiological parameters in our body, pH and electrolytes. Like if somebody arrives unconscious in the emergency room, they'll look at pH, they'll look at electrolytes and they'll look at blood sugar because those are yep. really important things that can kill you. But what's crazy is that we can exist with a blood sugar level highs and lows that are orders of magnitude greater than the deltas that we can survive in pH or electrolytes. Like if your 
pH goes up or down by just a little bit, you will get sick or you will die. If your electrolytes are chronically, you know, perturbed high or low, you can die. And so these are just some really tightly regulated uh, parameters, but it's also something that, uh, again, you know, some first order thinking tying sodium to processed foods to, to uh, hypertension, there's definitely linkage there. There's definitely a case like we probably should eat less processed foods without a doubt. But the, the, the bugger again is that when people shift away from processed foods, and this is true, whether it's paleo or vegan or what have you, they tend to eat less total food. Their insulin sensitivity tends to improve. When we produce less insulin, we retain less sodium. And this is is likely one of the reasons why traditional foods, traditional cuisines have these kind of side accompanying items that are very sodium dense. You think about like chutneys and Indian food, Antipasta plates in Italy, in Italian and Mediterranean foods, um, mm-hmm. uh, miso and and different uh, fermented uh, vegetables and like Japanese and in different Asian cuisine. So the main meals traditionally usually weren't that salty, but they had high salt accompanying items that would help kind of balance that stuff out. And people would tend to eat to satiety with with these you know minimally processed foods. And their health was arguably much, much better than what ours ours is currently. You know, all, all other things being equal. Yeah, no, that's 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 a good point because uh, I, I one of my favorite things to do is to travel, and I love to sample cuisines of wherever I am in the world, and whether it be the types of fermented foods that they make. Or recently, I was in Portugal, and there, like you said, the antipasto is super salty. Like they'll yep. serve up some meat whether it be super salty salmon or some kind of a sort of thinly sliced ham type of meat or lots of olives that they salt pretty, pretty darn good and stuff like that. It's pretty amazing that they, you know, they eat super rich foods, but everything that they served me, I recognized like there wasn't any mystery or mystery food item. Like I was like, Oh, that's an olive. Oh, that's a, this, Oh, oh, that's that kind of meat. Okay. You know, that's a cheese or this or that, like everything was recognizable. It was all basically single ingredient stuff. And it was Mm -hmm. really nice. I gotta be honest with you, Rob, like I don't eat out much in the U S because I just cringe at the thought of what goes into the food. My son, um, in his teenage years worked at a restaurant and it was, it was like a good local, like homemade type of place. Like everything was made from scratch. Although I'll be honest, they did get a Cisco truck coming in and they would drop off the big tubs, five gallon tubs of this fake butter substitute stuff. And he told me one day he read like every ingredient. He's like, dad, there's like a hundred ingredients in that. And although it's homemade, you know, sort of the homemade, nice, you know, uh, foods, they literally slather the grill with that stuff. They slather it on everything. And he's like, dad, I can't even eat the food anymore. This is disgusting. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was one of my favorite restaurants. (laughs) Right. Right. It's that stuff is literally hiding in plain sight and and you know one one day we're going to get it but i think at least the words getting out that uh you know the the real food matters you know that this stuff with multiple ingredients um many of which most people can't recognize you and i being sort of biochemists at at, at heart can recognize most of these compounds and things but the average person they're going to look at it and they can't even pronounce half of the stuff that's in all these different mystery meats or even the the mystery egg that's out there that they call just egg i mean right the nomenclature there is just hideous, right? I mean, it's nothing close to an egg and it's full of soybean oil and everything else. And it just drives me nutty to even think about it. But uh, I just want to give you a second to just 
you know, put this in sort of Rob's right now today, what, what is your, I mean, just tell us what your average day looks like as far as what you eat, what you do, you, you know, your sort of non-negotiable health practices, and then just where people can find you. And maybe we can go deeper on some of these topics on a future episode. I want to respect oh, sure. your time. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, married two kids, uh, eight and 10. So I think that context is important, you know, um, yeah. Just uh, you know, schedules and whatnot. We started homeschooling about six months before COVID because we'd moved from Reddy, oh. uh, uh, Reno to Texas, and yeah. we just kind of wanted one year to kind of get our feet under us and and then plug the kids in, into the schools there. And then when COVID hit, we we're like, okay, that looks like this <laughs> this is Easy. what we're what we're doing, you know. And and everybody has enjoyed it. And although it, it's it's funny, it's really demanding on the one hand, but it's also liberating on the other. Like there's there's you know, uh, pluses and minuses to both sides of that. But, uh, I am not a night owl and I live in, in, um, Northern Montana. So like our days are short, like short. Right, we're almost at solstice <laughs> right now. I know we are releasing this a little bit yeah. later, but, uh, you know, the, the sun is down by like four 30. So, oh, wow. uh, by about seven o'clock, I, I usually about six 30 or seven, I've got some blue blockers on I'm stretching <laughs> with my kids um my kids are really in a terror of watching baking shows right now so like we'll watch <laughs> like baking impossible and stuff like that these kind of game shows and uh we'll do a little bit of wind down time with the family i go to bed early i i uh, do a little bit of reading and then i'm out i wake up about 6 six fifteen, usually without an alarm i have a backup yeah. alarm just in case but it, it's set for like 45 minutes later than what i usually wake up and my wife and I started doing some zone two cardio first time, first thing in the morning, maybe about four months ago, really consistently. And uh, there's been a number of resources on that, like Joel Jameson from the the Morpheus platform, the heart rate variability platform and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. He put this on my radar. Peter Atia has done some great work on this, but just looking at cardiovascular health and, uh, morbidity, mortality, like that zone two cardio seemed like a, a super important thing to do. And I got to say, um, normally seasonal affective disorder stuff crushes me, but I've been getting like three to four days a week of zone two cardio first thing in the morning. And I've been pretty good. Like I, it, it, uh, where we live here, not only are we far North, but there's just, we live in a Valley and there's this inversion layer. We only get 110 days of sun, all sun a year. And then the days are short and uh, knock on wood, but I, I've been doing really well on the seasonal effective stuff. Uh, three days a week, I do this vitamin D lamp called a uh, spurty. And I, it, 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 it's just for making vitamin D. It doesn't really give you a tan. And um, I do uh, front, front top and bottom back top and bottom on that. And that has been keeping my vitamin D levels uh, anywhere from like 65 to 80. Um, so I, awesome. I really wow. stick close to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My wife and kids and I all do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. My wife and I get about three days a week in on that. And that's usually at noon. So we'll, uh, we'll get up, do zone two cardio on days that I'm not doing jujitsu. Um, it day that we're doing jujitsu uh, either way, we'll do homeschool about noon. We, pile out of the house to, to go get to jujitsu, come back. Um, my, my daughters do jujitsu at, at 4 PM. So it's kind of a tight turnaround on that jujitsu days for the kids. I usually throw some food in the crock pot. It's like a soup, a stew or, or a roast on those days. 
uh, I eat three meals a day. It's kind of crazy. Breakfast, lunch, dinner yeah. seems to work well for me. Yeah. Uh, uh, cool. Uh, if you ever want to talk fasting sometime, I'm not actually a huge fan of fasting for a lot of people. It can be a tool, but it's, it's I, really, I quit, I quit I used medicine. To do it and now I'm back to three meals a day. I'll be honest. Yeah. I, I didn't do as well on it. And so I do yeah. three meals a day, just like you, but I eat during the daylight hours. I don't eat yep. past about six o'clock at night, five thirty-six. no more eating nothing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Same, same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, trying to think of what else we I don't know, 90% of the food that we eat is, is home cooked. We eat out occasionally. It's kind of funny. There was a really cool little restaurant kind of sounds like what you were describing with your son that was close to us. We live out in a very rural area. And so it's about a 40 minute drive to get to a restaurant, <laughs> 25 to 40 minutes, depending on where we go. Uh, there was yeah. one about 12 minutes away, but it closed. And so when uh, it closed, like we just quit going out yeah. to eat for the most part, um, maybe once every couple of weeks we'll go out to eat. Uh, I have celiac, so I have to be really extra careful yeah. in dealing with that stuff. Um, I noticed both with my daughters, one daughter is very much like my wife. She is very carb tolerant. One is very much like me, not particularly carb tolerant and we'll get on blood sugar roller coasters. Yeah. So we have to kind of, uh, watch her a little bit more. Um, but, uh, man, I don't know. I could jabber on and on with, yeah, with no, that that's stuff, great. But that, that's I, kind I of the, hear, yeah. Yeah. I love to hear just sort of the, the average day in the life, you know, and, and mine's not a lot different than that. I, like I mentioned, I went back to three meals a day and, you know, I don't eat my first meal when I roll out of bed. I'm like you, I do some sort of physical activity, whatever that is, depending on where I am in the world. If it's Hawaii, I'm going surfing every morning. Mm -hmm. For example, if I'm in the mountains, I'll get up, do a couple of ski laps or a walk or something like that before I eat anything. But I'm back to three meals a day and I feel much better. And, and the, the thing that for me, I was noticing, Rob, and I think we're about the same age. I turned 50 next year. I just noticed that my last decade, like the whole fasting thing wasn't working for me that much. I, I yeah. wasn't, you know, as energized. I was feeling like I was losing some muscle mass and um, I'm big on protein like you. My first meal a day has tons of protein. And, and for all those folks that want to lose weight, actually, there's a lot of data behind that. If you start your first meal of the day packed with yep. protein, just like Rob said, your satiety levels go up and you're not going to feel the need to just consume all day long. I mean, protein is so powerful, so important. And so whatever time that is for you, I always recommend you start your day with protein, whether that's breakfast, whether that's lunch, whatever works best for you. And I think, Rob, you've been, you've been very... Uh, just what you've shared has been really great to hear because some people out there just feel like, you know, all the folks in this sphere are so dogmatic on one thing or another. And you seem pretty relaxed about it all because I really feel like everybody is a little bit different. You can tune things to your own body. As long as you start with the basics, right? Real food is number one. And then obviously move your body, you know, manage your sleep, which is paramount. I, I was like yeah. you too. I used to love the cure song sleep when you're dead. You know, as a physician, it was kind of like sleep is for the wusses out there. Like I don't right. need to sleep, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm missing something if I'm sleeping, you know, and I sleep eight hours, almost, almost eight hours a night now. And it's amazing. And when I don't get it, yeah. my wife will let you know, she'll, she'll be like, Oh my gosh, you're so cranky today. You must not have slept last night. <laughs> you know? Right. So right. It's, it's the little things. It's the little things. And so I appreciate that you sort of echo that and, and that you're doing it in real life. You got a couple of kids and, and the girls, I don't know. I got two girls myself. They, I, you know, I don't know. They're not quite teenagers yet, but I feel like they're a little bit more challenging than the boys, at least when they're, you know, in their younger years, it probably will flip flop. I'm sure I'll eat my words here in a couple more years, but, uh, it's great to hear that you're doing this with kids and it's working and, and all that good stuff. So just 
tell us where folks can follow you, how they can find you, how they can get your LMNT, all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Robwolf.com is kind of the main spot where I hang out. Yep. I do a lot of writing for Element, which is the electrolyte product that I, I'm a co-founder of. That's at drinkelement.com. And we cover a lot of ground, not just related to electrolytes and hydration, but fasting and and uh, low-carb diets, like a, a pretty broad host of things. I've been slowly dipping my toes back into a little bit of social media. I was effectively off of social <laughs> media for about two years, but I've been slowly putting a a little bit of a nose out there here and there, just um, <laughs> trying to, uh, on these topics, particularly of like regenerative ag and some of these food system topics, I, I've been popping my head up because I, I think that there's a lot of fear around like uh, uh, climate change, the implications for the world and for our planet and everything. And uh, uh, the case that I've been making is that humans are remarkably good at solving problems so long as we have good access to information and we have an opportunity to really argue and debate things in an open and transparent way, then we usually do a pretty good job of, of uh, you know, get, getting to a decent solution. And so I've been uh, popping my head up a little bit more to try to get folks to, to think about these things in a, a nuanced, complex way and just have a discussion around it and be okay with the reality that folks are having a discussion. I think a lot of the the uh, sentiment of the science is settled. Like that's what got me into the the, the disastrous state that I had my health because yeah. I thought, oh man, a, a vegan diet is it. And I'm sure that a vegan diet works great for some folks. And the, the, just like a low carb diet is not the appropriate diet for everybody, you know? And if we are honest and um, keep comparing notes then we can avoid some of these pitfalls. And I think that this has been one of the things that I, I really passionate about is um, it, it, science should have a sign put on it that says good until further notice, not that it's, <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. we should be really comfortable with vigorous debate about these topics. And um, if there's just wanton bullshit out there, it doesn't survive the light of day. It really doesn't. The more scrutiny that BS is subjected to the weaker the proposition it, it it deals with. And this is also why I'm a little bit cranky about the folks that want to shut down these open debates because I really feel like they're yeah. they're trying to protect yeah. the bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a great point. My I got an older son that's uh he's big into just reading and he, he said one of his uh I I gotta be honest, I can't think of who said this, but he said basically if you are not willing to debate this is a person, you know, somebody who's not willing to, to debate an issue, whatever the issue, doesn't matter what it is, what, whatever we're talking about, could be health, could be, you know, politics, could be whatever. If they're not willing to debate it, this is somebody you really shouldn't trust. Like, right. honestly, you got to be willing to not only ask the questions yourself, but to allow others to ask the questions. We have to be inquisitive. We have to be, you know, continuing. I love that until further notice that that should be something that is taught in medical school. They always give that quote at the end. You know, we've taught you all these amazing things, only half of the which, you know, are true, at least, you know, every year many of these things that we thought were gospel, so to speak, have, have been debunked. And we just can't tell you which half, right? You know, it's kind of right. a joke, but uh, science is evolving. It's changing. You got to keep asking questions. And that's why I love folks like you that are not afraid of asking the questions, not afraid of a good, healthy debate. I think debate is good. It's productive. It's good to get all the information out there. 
and then just let people pick and, and what works to, for them may not be exactly what works for me, but at least we got to share the information. We have to be willing to share it, not hide it. Like many of those, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I hate to say, you know, bad willed or, you know, uh, folks that, that we know of, right. That are involved in our legislature and all this kind of stuff that are literally hiding information from us, or they're not publishing data because it doesn't suit them or whatever their bottom line is. And it's, it's just crazy. We got to get the information out there. We got to be willing to look for it. We got to be willing to ask the questions and you do that really, really well. And so robwolf.com, that's two B's one F I'll put all that in the show notes and all your other links. And I'm just grateful for you, Rob, for being here, for being real and for just being open with us. And I can't wait to have you back again. I, I huge honor doc. Thank you. Oh my goodness. That was so much fun. I hope you guys enjoyed the show as much as I did doing it and talking to the Mr. Rob Wolf. That's at Rob, R-O-B-B, Wolf, W-O-L-F.com. Just an amazing human. On Instagram, he's Wolf. I'll link it up in the show notes. He's uh, such a guy, such an amazing human, cool character, you know, just cool cat all around. Really had a great discussion with him. Enjoyed it so much. So if you liked it, enjoyed it, be sure to drop on over there to Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Hit the star farthest to the right, five stars, and drop a review. Drop a little note. And I'm going to go ahead and just just call it out. I'm going to start a contest. And if we can get up to a couple hundred reviews uh, coming up for the release of my book, I'm going to give away several copies. I'll even autograph the dang things and I'll get them out to you. So if you want an autograph copy of my upcoming book, Preventable, you better get over there to Apple or Spotify and also shout me out on Instagram, on social, and we'll enter you in to get a free signed copy. I will autograph your copy of the book if you're one of our lucky winners. So jump on over there to Apple Podcasts or wherever you can drop a review. Tag me, share it, share it to the world. I'd love to reshare that because I just love you guys. I love doing this. I love sharing and getting this movement onward for unshakable health for all. Until next time, Dr. Thomas Hemingway signing off. Aloha.